This is The Guardian. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Sir Bobby Charlton, probably England's greatest ever footballer, certainly its most successful. We will pay tribute to him after he passed away at the age of 86. All heroes die in the end. An extraordinary life, touched by tragedy, but a wonderful servant to Manchester United. On the pitch at the weekend, it was Diogo Dalot who unexpectedly channeled his inner Charlton to give United another scratchy win. Arsenal were poor, but gifted away back in at Stamford Bridge. A point at Chelsea, who are starting to look disappointingly functional and good. A tricky day for the Liverpool conspiracy theorists after it emerged that Jurgen Klopp's allowed to substitute players before they're sent off. Newcastle hammer Palace, should Kieran Trippier pack Jacob Murphy in his suitcase For the Euros, there's a ludicrously impressive year of Unai Emery at Villa. Relief as Erling Haaland finally scores again. And Gary O'Neill wins the Gary O'Neill derby. Victory for Brentford, another point for Luton. Cheltenham finally winning. Chimbonda sees red. And when did you have to sell your Porsche? All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, John Bruin, welcome. Hello, Max. Hello, Paul McInnes. Good morning, Max. And hello, Jordan Jarrett-Brian. Good morning, mate. Um, let's start with Bobby Charlton then. Um, we heard the sad news uh, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, a World Cup winner in 66. Brilliant career at Manchester United, including their first European Cup. One of the Bosby babes was on the plane in Munich, was an essential part of Manchester United's rebuild afterwards. John, you wrote a, a lovely tribute um, in The Guardian. You're a Manchester United fan, of course. W- what did he mean to, to that club? I mean, it seems like a ridiculous question. The first thing to say is that, that, that Bobby Charlton was a was an ever present at Manchester United for for seventy years until health disallowed him from being around. And um, when when you dig into the, the life he led at Manchester United, which takes in you know, Busby Babes, nineteen sixty eight, and then um, later in life, and this is the longest job that he served at United as a as a, as, a, as a club president, as um, someone whose presence gave authenticity to Manchester United. Because the other thing is, that apart from reviving the club from the Busby Babes to winning the European Cup in 1968, he was a key figure in reviving the club in the 1980s when he had a small chat with Alex Ferguson at the 86 World Cup and then Alex Ferguson joined the club and also backing Ferguson. And then... You consider the established figure he was, you know, when England ever bid for a World Cup, Bobby Charlton would be right at the front of that. And uh, and the thing is, with he was one of those people that you would see him as an establishment figure, an, an austere figure, and that's because you have you see the people that he was surrounded by because you compare him to, say, George Best and Dennis Law, those two people that he's on that statue with, both very different personalities. Dennis, very outgoing, someone that loved life. George Best, well, you know, 
uh, you know, a, a, a sort of almost like rock star lifestyle. And then, of course, you compare him to Jack, his brother, who was the you know the everyman character, you know, who won the Hearts of Ireland, who was this, um, you know, the type of bloke you everyone would have, wouldn't have a pint with. Whereas Bobby was this very clipped person. But the one thing that I've always thought is that. His love for the game was so apparent in every time he spoke about football. You could see his eyes glaze over almost when he talked about it. Um, the other thing, uh, and we talked about this yesterday, Max, is that, uh, and, and I think Paul is of the similar generation, we remember Bobby Charlton as Bobby Charlton Soccer Schools. Mm. So he taught a generation of, of kids to play football. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had some friends that went there. David Beckham went there. And I remember um, in the 90s, actually, there was a, a TV programme uh, and it was Ryan Giggs's soccer schools, OK? And uh, so it was Ryan Giggs, who probably was only about 18, 19 at the time, and Bobby was the coach alongside him. And, of course, uh, Ryan Giggs was a teenager. He didn't really know what he was doing in front of a camera, but Bobby Charlton just had this enthusiasm for football, just taking kids through it. And you could just see that, uh, as a football man, they'll probably be none greater from, from English football. I remember a guy I was at school with called Ben King, uh, who was a good footballer. He was He's being lifted up by Bobby Charlton on the back of Football 86, which is probably the greatest currency you could have possibly had at primary school. It was like, this is the most amazing thing that could that anyone could be. And, and there was a guy who texted in the radio yesterday, and there have been amazing tributes all over the place. He said he was... In the 70s, went on holiday to Italy and as a little kid, and they were playing football. And little Italian guys, you know, boys they're playing football with, would just put two thumbs up and just say Bobby Charlton, you know, in a, in a sort of thick Italian accent. So I know that he had, you know, that is the level that he had transcended. And I spoke to Wilson yesterday who said, you know, he wrote that book, The Two Brothers, about him and Jack, and said, you know, when he was researching it, and perhaps we should all just know it anyway, but it's clear to Wilson that he is the greatest English footballer of all time, for what he won, you know, the World Cup, European Cup, Ballon d'Or, all sort of within a couple of years. And and that he was sort of pivotal in the game. Like, it wasn't like he just happened to be there and won all these medals. He was like a totally key part of those things. In 66, he was absolutely vital in 68 as well. In a slightly wishy-washy way, I just feel like Bobby Charlton defined what it was to be English and good at football. I think that the, the combination, and Mark Chapman said this on the radio on Saturday, and I thought it was it was it was quite it was quite astute actually. That you, you watch you watch clips of him, Charlton, and and he still has this he has this modern air to him. You know that the way he hits the ball, the power with which he hits the ball, sort of resonates through the years. And I think this combination of power and technique, which he had, is something that kind of all the so many of the English icons that have come since have also shared, you know, from Gaza to, to Wayne Rooney. And I, I think, I don't think you could have had a Roy the Rovers without Bobby Charlton. It's just that kind of, he encapsulated this thing, which was about strength, determination, power, but also, you know, grace, flair, ability, and, the, you know, the ability to make your jaw drop. Just to briefly add as well, because you guys have all summed it up really, really well. I've just finished the Beckham documentary. And in, I think it's episode three, he, he talks about Bobby Charlton and how, you know, a big part of why he enjoyed playing for Manchester United, he being Beckham, was that he got to 
play under the the kind of guidance or the gaze, if you like, of of this legend. And he talks about how huge a figure he was, not only the club, but how big a figure he was for him personally and being at the club. And he was a big reason as to why he struggled to, to, to leave the club. So I just think even modern day players, you know, they feel the presence of what it was like to play for Manchester United and the importance. And that was all through the prism of of this legend. I mentioned that he, he, he'd stepped away from public life from illness. And I think it's, it's important, uh, considering that, that this fate befell Bobby Charlton, it's important, I think, English football needs to do more to re- to address this idea of dementia in footballers. When you consider how many of the 1966 team were struck by that, Jack himself, and, you know, any of us here that have been affected by similar illnesses, it's it's a really serious thing. I still, to this day, don't think English football's done enough about that or football as a, as a whole. And it's very, very sad to, to consider that's what happened and that in in being such a football hero, perhaps they endangered their own lives. It's a, it's a, there's a tragic coda to, you know, a brilliant life led. Yeah, we we did a special on that. I think with, um, in, including Nobby Starr's son was on that and uh, we'll post out a link to that one. I think it's a really good point. Another couple of, couple of things that Wilson said I thought were interesting were, he was obviously a superstar, right? A total superstar, but almost the, the last ever local lad who remained a local lad and still lived a local lad's life. You know, if you could, of course you can be a local lad from anywhere to become a footballer now, but it's different when you become that. And I don't think, and Wilson sort of said he might have been the last of that kind. And also in a sort of era defining way, him and Pele passing feels like quite a moment. Of course, Jeff Hurst now the, the sole survivor of, of 66. And like I said in the intro, right, all our heroes go. Like that's, you know, we all do. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise given that, you know, he was 86 and not very well. But that that era is something that, you know, for us growing up is interesting, I think, because we never saw them play, but we knew every single thing about them. And I, I wonder if, you know, 10-year-olds now do know that about about them. I was going to sorry to go back to John's point about the dementia and the the work that he mentioned football needs to do. I, I wonder how much of that has to come from the players themselves because I think it's all well and good us saying the game needs to do more to protect players, but I I, I just think that the players themselves have to be open and aware and and vulnerable enough to want to do what it takes to protect their own uh, longevity and and then their own um, their own health and I just can't quite work out how you impose how does the game impose I don't know checks on players if the players see it as a oh no it's fine I'll worry worry about that later on sort of thing I I don't know how how that works I mean really difficult I mean it's probably a conversation for another day isn't it but really difficult if you're playing right you're playing you're getting paid loads of money it's it's got to come from yeah sure there's got to be the will but it's got to come from it's got to come from the whole of the game right You've seen it, haven't you, with players that are, let's say, only recently retired. I mean, say Alan Shearer's done a documentary and a, and a Gary Palliser's had, had a look at that as well. It's it's one of those things that maybe later in life you start to think, mm, okay. Uh, and, yeah, you just look at that older generation of players and it's always been the case and we just weren't used to the idea that that's what might happen to, to players that have well headed footballs. And it, it's, it's just a... Yeah, it, it, it's what it's football's great unknown, really, isn't it? Um, and we should know more about it. That's the truth of it. As I said, John, you wrote a really great piece 
Wilson's written one, Paul Hayward's written one, I think Richard Williams has written one as well. So, you know, go go to the Guardian website, especially if you're a younger listener who doesn't know a lot about him and just listening to all the old commentary, so evocative. You know, even games that obviously I wasn't even alive for, but you know the commentary of because you've heard them so many times. Um, uh, it's always amazing when you, you hear those. Uh, let's move on to the football then. We'll start with Manchester United. Um, uh, Diego Dallas won the goal to win it. I mean, I, I can't imagine, John... After the last few windows of spending, Man United would expect to be relying on goals from uh, McTominay and Dalot. <laughs> yes, uh, you, you, you've rather hit on the, the Manchester United problem, haven't you? In that, what, whatever players are signed for, they don't seem to end up doing that. I, I, I thought this was a game Manchester United would lose, just because how, how does a team like Manchester uh, Sheffield United end their winless run? Here's Manchester United, always willing to uh, hand over a, a, a nice um, a morale-lifting win. Except they didn't this time. You couldn't say Manchester United played well, though they created a lot of chances. Uh, and that's the issue, isn't it? The, the strikers, uh, the forwards, are not on form at all. Marcus Rashford is well out of touch. Um, and you can see there's a there's a, almost a desperation in some of the finishing. There's one chance in particular where he wings it in past the post and you think, the Marcus Rashford of last season, that would have gone in, no problem. Uh, and then you've got Martial, you've got Hoyland, uh, obviously at different ends of their United careers. Thank God for Scott McTominay, apart from when he handballs blatantly in the box. And uh, Dalot, well, he's one of those where if he tries that every game for the rest of the season, he's going to end up with one goal for the season, isn't he? So, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if he got 25. Um, Nathan says, is Scott McDominate, which I think is a great new nickname yeah, yeah, yeah. for him, uh, now an integral part of this United team or simply driving up his January transfer fee? Paul, what do you reckon? Probably someplace in the middle. Um, Sofiane Amrabat had a couple of McDominate-esque efforts in the game that a couple of inches the other way could have, could have been the sort of... Uh, impactful goal you'd hope for from an expensive summer recruit um, and I imagine that you know as time goes on he's going to be starting more games and you'll see less of McTominay um, but again I think John and I were on with you a couple of weeks ago and after McTominay scored a brace and we were talking about you know culture and all things like that and just what he embodies and and I think that just uh, that even the way he hit that volley there was just something it was slightly ungainly but it was also determined and he just sort of found that way to get that angle and, and, and drive the ball through. Uh, United need players with, with the will and determination, even if they're, if they're not, um, you know, the most talented in, you know, for my money, he, he's an incredibly accomplished player, but obviously not at the superstar level that United like to think that every player has to, to operate in. But yeah, maybe not, maybe not, Jan, maybe not January, but I, at some point, somebody's going to come in and pay the money that United are willing to accept. I think. Yeah, United weren't very good, and I think if they play pretty much any other team in the league, they 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 don't they don't win this game. But my my takeaway from this game was more Sheffield United's goalkeeper, and I think foddering foddering whom, um, and I think there's a theme throughout a lot of my analysis today, which is goalkeepers. I just wonder if he. I look at him, and I've watched him for a few weeks now, and I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be horrible. But but. but I mean, he looks like he's League One level. I mean, both goals, but but both goals, in my opinion, I think he could do better on. I mean, I know he was in the Championship last season, so therefore he's at least Championship level. 
but I've watched him a few weeks now and I just think to myself, you look really out of your depth, like crazily out of his depth. And I, I just think for both goals, the first goal, all right, you could maybe say he's flat-footed and he wasn't expecting Tomine to strike it and uh, maybe I could let him off there. But the second one, it's a great strike, but he does get two hands to it. He does get two hands to it. And I just think to myself, I've seen you for, like I say, a few weeks now. I just wonder if he's if he's part of the issue with Sheffield United in that they're not doing anything intrinsically wrong. They're just not good enough and they're just not at the level. Sorry, I don't know if that was overly harsh, but... No, I was yeah. just thinking, sort of given... Given how well Villa have done since you began, I mean, he'll be starting from winning the Euros by the summer. Uh, anyway, that'll do uh, for part one. Part two uh, will begin at Stamford Bridge. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. We're going on tour. We're in London on the 13th of November, uh, Manchester on the 15th. Uh, tickets are selling fast, or tickets are selling quite fast. Look, tickets are selling. Can we just sell out, and then I can stop plugging these things? Ellis James, Troy Townsend, Filippo, Claire, me and Baz on the 13th. Me, Baz, John Brewer, Nadia Manuha, and the Will Unwin anecdote on the 15th. The live stream is, of course, global. Go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Um, the live stream is on the 22nd from Brighton, uh, but it'll be available for the week afterwards if you want to come along. Chelsea 2, Arsenal 2. Joe says if Alexander Zinchenko follows through on his threat to rip off Mikhailo Mudrix's balls for scoring against Arsenal, do you think Football Weekly will be playing in the background as he carries out the procedure? Very good. Paul, do you think Chelsea will feel like they let this one go? They were really good. Arsenal really flat. And... I'm not against goalkeepers playing out, but don't pass it to Declan Rice there. You know? Yeah. I, I, yes, I think they will be disappointed. And I think Pochettino looked disappointed. I think in, in one way, you look at the result and you step back from it and it's like, okay, clear signs that Chelsea are progressing and that's good. And given where they were a few weeks ago, you know, you can see it's coming together. There's going to be pressure lifting off the, off the squad. Um, but on the other hand, they were they were in control of the game. Three points would have been very useful. You could see the sort of signs of progress up the table and maybe the narrative starts to change about what their ambitions are and stuff. And that can come, but there was that opportunity there to put the foot down on the pedal a little bit and it, and it slipped. And these are, you know, these are Premier League lessons that uh, you can't, I mean, you know, errors are errors, are errors but there was, there was then a sort of like, a, they, they were rocked by that first goal, which I have to say was a great goal. I mean, the, the, I think he was standing outside the far post drives it with his instep to curl it inside the other post. First time, 25 yards. That's real technique, real determination, real ability. That's what you pay that amount of money for that sort of player for in those moments. They do those things. But after that, that clearly rattled uh, Chelsea and it only took another moment, or basically one pass from one pass from Ben White and some kind of unconscious tracking by, by Raheem Sterling, which meant he wasn't where he needed to be to block the cross. And that's it. Your, 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 your win's gone. So that, that's a learning for Chelsea, for this younger team that it's like, yeah, it's OK. It's a challenge to be able to find the level of performance you need. But then you also need to kind of have that resilience to keep in that zone for 100 minutes. And that's a that's a tough ask. 36 yards, actually, Declan Rice's goal. 36? Even yeah. for, I mean, that is that is incredible. I'm with you. I think it was an absolutely brilliant finish. I think it was absolutely superb, even if the goal was, was open. I was interested, John, how Chelsea lined up. You know, Gallagher and Palmer... Sounds like a band you'd have liked in the uh, in the seventies. Folk rock duo, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but I liked how they set up Chelsea. Eventually, 
Pochettino is going to find a proper way to play from that mishmash of players. And it, it did look as though he'd found it um, only for, as Paul says, uh, uh, you know, naivety to, 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 to count against them in the end. Are we seeing signs of a Chelsea revival? I think we've said that a few times over. I, I'm not sure. But I, I do think, uh, in an, it, well, it's a derby game, isn't it? They're able to get themselves up for it. I think they played pretty well. But if I know Mikhailo Mudrik, and I think I know Mikhailo Mudrik, that was a cross. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it was. But <laughs> if we're going to give him any credit, and Jordan, if you've done some notes on goalkeepers, I expect you've done some David Raya. He is very advanced. It was a bit like Tottenham's first goal in the North London derby. He was well out and, and the cross was sort of palmed and then there was a bit more play, etc. So maybe he, he gave him the eyes. I've seen some people say, say he meant it. How did you see this from an Arsenal point of view, Jordan? I think Arsenal, first of all, were, were, were lucky. I think for 75 minutes, Arsenal were outplayed and Chelsea deserved to win the match. So I think that is the, that is that just has to be said, first of all. In regards to the goal and the goalkeepers, I, I have a little bit of sympathy for Sanchez and Rea and both the goals they were deemed to have been at fault for. The, the, the Rea goal, first of all, as you mentioned there, I think he's a very aggressive front foot type goalkeeper who takes commanding his box and taking crosses very seriously. But I think he did that so much, his positioning was 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 two steps off, hence why he got caught. I, I, I would be, it would be worse for me if Mudrik had meant that. If Mudrik had spotted that gap and put it there, that's worse for Rea <laughs> in, 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 in one sense. But the fact that it, the fact that it was a fluke, I think I give him a little bit of sympathy on that one. Where I don't give him sympathy is his kicking and his distribution. We were told when he was brought to Arsenal that the reason he's been brought in was because his kicking was better than Ramsdale's, whose kicking for me is very good anyway. And I think in the last two or three games, in this match here in particular, we've seen his distribution and his passing, and it almost caught us out once again, has been at best average, in some instances really poor. That, for me, is the, is the slightly bigger concern I have for David Rea. And in regards to Sanchez, just going back to the goal that Rice scored, I agree with Paul, it's a brilliant strike, first time. If I'm to be a little bit sympathetic to Sanchez, it's a poor pass. But I think there's a combination of Gallagher being caught on his heels alongside Declan Rice, just well the opposite, and just anticipating that that pass coming in. So it's not a great pass, but I don't think he's as at fault for 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 that as as I think he's not entirely. I think at fault for that for that particular goal. But just going back to Arsenal as well, they 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 were fortunate. But I think the late goals they're getting are are great because they're getting a lot of late goals in games. But I just wonder if it's a bit sustainable, and I don't also believe in this whole cliche that people spout out which is sign of a good team is not playing well and winning I think you're afforded a couple of those over the course of a season but I I think over 38 games you've got to play well and in this game they just didn't particularly play well and key to that Maxim is uh, the fact that you need to win those games (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's a very good point Um, uh, do we Paul there were so many handball penalties and I mean, the McTominay one, even I thought was a penalty and I don't want any of them to be given. But we saw this Saliba one and um, there was a big discussion in the Sky Sports studio about you can't jump without using your arms. A guy called Jake emailed us a picture of, I think Mudrick is heading the ball, isn't he? And Saliba. And they've both got their arms in the sort of the same place. But if you're attacking the ball, well, that's all right. If you're defending it, you're not. And I think the thing that frustrates me the most now is that people now see this as a penalty you know that's instantly like our minds have now changed to this is a penalty so uh, even if I was yelling at clouds 
a year or two ago. Now I really am. I'm just yelling at like thin, wispy air now. I think you are, unfortunately, and because I think there's a key thing here in in the in this situation. I think with Saliba, he's he's established a body position, anticipating the ball being driven in his in his direction, and he's set himself up for it. So the 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 fact that the ball is very close, which I think has been used in mitigation an awful number of times, and makes an awful lot of sense. You can't. He he is anticipating the movement. He's made he's made that move. It doesn't really matter how far it is away by then. And I think the silhouette is clearly big. He's got and he's got his arm flipped up. Uh, I you know I I understand that you get a lot of talk from people saying, particularly pros and pro pundits, saying you need more professionals involved in these discussions around the rules and around VAR because we need to understand better what somebody would be doing in that situation. I don't think personally, if you sat down a thousand professionals and asked them to draw the the appropriate silhouette for going for a header, they'd all have the same shape. I think that would be a bit subjective too. And I'm not sure you'd ever really get to the end of it. I I, I think if you've got your arm, I I think there's no, you don't need to jump with your arm like that. You can jump with your arm like that. And I think as long as that's a matter of debate, Saliba's putting himself, that's part of the rules as well. If the player knows that he might be taking a risk by having that body shape, then he leaves himself open to, to the foul being given against him. Um, far, far less important than Paul's point there. Has Gary Neville patented or patterned the phrase, oh no? no. Oh no. He seems to in every oh, single no. game now, just at some oh, point go, it's, it's, oh it, no. It's, it's, no. It's a groan, isn't it? It's a sort of, oh. Which, yeah. which brings, oh God, I don't want to think about it. Oh, what? <laughs> no, I was thinking, I was thinking like, you know, it's quite, that guy after Vicar of Dibley, but that was slightly different. Wasn't it? I mean, if Neville started doing that, yes, 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 no, I would sort of enjoy that slightly more. Well, he's he's evolved his act. He's evolved his act. So remember when he first started the the sort of goalgasm yeah. that he did. Remember the, the uh, Torres one, the yeah, Torres goal. For, uh, yeah, just mm. like oh, just. I guess you've got to have a thing yeah. as a co-coms, right? You've got to be memorable. Um, isn't he a Dragon's Den now? You know, hi Gary, I won a hundred thousand pounds for my uh, for my new business. Oh no, it's a board game with your face on it, and I have to, for ten percent of it, you can buy. Um, let's go to Liverpool, Everton, Liverpool two, Everton nil. Uh, Jim says, as Canate uh, should have received a second yellow, can we expect Klopp to call for a replay of the Merseyside derby for the good of the game? Um, of course, we've got a lot of questions like that. Paul, Liverpool deserve to win this game. But Sean Dyche is well within his rights to be really quite sad that Ashley Young was sent off and Ibrahima Kanate wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the second booking, uh, the second booking incident for Kanate that wasn't a booking. I, I think I th- was he didn't have his arm for, for for very long, and it didn't look like much of a grab, more of a obstruction. But you know, you've seen him, you've even given him a million times, and it wasn't. Uh, yeah, you've seen a million, given a million times, and you can completely understand why he should have been sent off in that situation, and he was denying the opportunity for the break. So, um, yeah, uh, and that is that is how football goes, and that's why all the histrionics of the other week just make you think, oh, come on, guys, you know, have a bit more awareness about how this operates. Um, and Everton, you know, Everton played played well. I thought, you know, they, they look they look they didn't look particularly dangerous on the day. But they looked, uh, you know, they looked well organised, and they were committed, and and you know the, the opportunities that that Liverpool had were weren't great, weren't they were, they were sort of limited. But Liverpool were the better side. I think at this moment in time in this season, you feel like they will find a way in a game, and I think that's quite important uh, going forward. And you know, 
Clearly, Mo Salah is back in the form that, that we associate him with. His, his numbers are as good as anybody in the league. And, and, and that, you know, a player of his quality, that just makes ultimately makes a, can still make a tangible difference in, in most yeah. matches. Actually, Young's red card is silly. I mean, Dyer said the first one was tricky. The first one was as blatant as they come. Um, and then yeah. you don't go to ground. But like, he is young, right? So, so he'll learn in, in time, isn't he? Thank you. <laughs> the thing that I think always pours oil on that type of thing is the way that Canate was instantly subbed. I mean, that just you could just brilliant, see, just like absolutely brilliant. It? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Klopp knew what he was doing there. That was very, very funny. Yeah. How does that work though? Because presumably he's not going to get. You can't VAR a yellow card, so he's not going to. Is he saying that? But by dint of that action, that discreet hand that it shows signs of a player who's about to blow up and do something stupid again. Is that what he's saying? I think it's just, if he commits any other foul, okay. he's gone, right? That's what it means. We had a good question from Oliver. It says, is it time to scrap two yellow cards as a red? It's quite a big punchy rule change, given the history of football. But it close, so clearly ruins the spectacle of the game. It'll never be fairly and consistently applied. Why not two yellows or immediate substitution like Liverpool did, or even a sin bin? And a rugby, I, I sort of agree. There are, I think, there are too many penalties and almost too many red cards. Jordan, I'll throw that one at you. Yeah, I've, I've always, a bit like you, I've never really been dismissive of the idea of a discussion of, of a sin bin um, implementation in, in the game. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm for that. I don't like the idea when people say, oh, it ruins the game, the referee ruined the game, because the referee's not there to ensure the mm. game's a spectacle, right? The referee's there to implement the laws. So if he's got to book a player or send him off, then he's, he's got to do it. But um, the, the, the idea of a sin bin for me is something that I'm definitely up for considering at the bare minimum. Um, I just wanted to mention Diaz, who's becoming quickly my favourite player in the Premier League, bar Kevin De Bruyne. Um, I, I love, we seem to be back to the era now of dribblers and wingers that actually take on people. We have your Sackers and your Grealishes and who's a boy at Newcastle, Gordon, that just really take on players. And I really love that. And my final point in this game was, did not Liverpool score that exact same second goal against Everton last season? I'm, I'm sure yeah. I remember that same yeah. breakaway goal right. from Liverpool <laughs> last season as well. Newcastle before Palace nil. I mean, Newcastle were brilliant in this game. Um, and Jacob Murphy has become a sort of Gerard Lampard skulls all in one. And you just get the feeling, John, that they score early. I mean, just Newcastle just have this ability to just absolutely hammer teams, don't they? Yeah, they're beginning to look awesome, aren't they? And we forget that they didn't start the season so well. And it's it's suddenly all starting to click into gear. Jordan mentioned before, Anthony Gordon flying. It's been, it's been. Uh, I mean, yeah, Newcastle are a threat. I mean, obviously, uh, the Tonali thing uh, is a is a big issue. Uh, he, there was a sort of tearful adieu as he left the field because he knows that we won't probably won't be seeing him for the rest of the season. But they don't really need him. That's the thing. They, they are they are a, a, a very very good team. Listen, they've had money spent. We know where the money's come from. But we also know that clubs can spend money badly and uh, they've done a really good job there in building that team. And it it, it does, when you see St. James's Park uh, in that sort of, these sort of ecstatic scenes, it does, again, you've almost got like a nostalgia trip there. You know, you go back to the 90s or whatever because there is a club that enjoys its football when it's going well. Uh, though When it's not going well, 
they're good at complaining too. But it, it was, it, yeah. But I mean, awesome, awesome stuff from them. Um, John, yeah. John, John. Sorry, they, they've spent a lot of money and they've brought in good players. But the biggest achievement at Newcastle that I see is Eddie Howe somehow turned Murphy into prime Figo. It is getting to the stage where Eddie Howe now is getting the right amount of credit for making these players so much better <laughs> because we're all do- <laughs> we're saying it every week. But Murphy in this game, like, okay, the Trippier assist, that cushioned volley was something. <laughs> He does that every week, though, Trippier, though, doesn't he? He does it all the time. I know, but it's such yeah. a talent, that. But the finish for the first, like, it was a bit fluky. The pass for Callum Wilson's goal was something else. And, you know, and this is a sort of regulation Premier League footballer, I think. To, to go back to your original point about developing talent, you know, as, as well as as well as Longstaff, uh, uh, as well as, you know, Callum Wilson still still leading the line, Gordon being developed, Dan Burnett left back, Lascelles is back in the team, you know, after being bombed down for two years. And then you've got Murphy, who... You know, I, I watched Murphy in the Youth Cup final for Norwich. He was with his twin brother, uh, Josh. They were the leading lights of this team. Murphy quickly went, went had one great season for us and then got sold on to Newcastle. And he has had to do the hard yards for years. You know, he's been sort of playing reserve wing back and things like that over the, over the course of his Newcastle career. And he's just kept at it and grafted and grafted to the extent that it's what you associate with him, I'd say, in the first instance, is this just hard work? And, uh, and and battery that means he you know gets up and down the field and covers all those yards. But what he showed us on 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 at the weekend was you know his ability that the the assist for the Wilson goal first time you know again like a what a 40, 50 yard ball right onto right onto Wilson's feet first time that you know that he's got he's got he's, he he is a, he does have high levels of ability too. But and and so you know he's maybe built the platform now where he can start to show that. David, um, on the worrying trend of not being able to live without Barry, says, I miss Barry. I feel a bit hollow without him in my life three times a week. In his absence, my question is for Jordan Jarrett Bryan. Villa are good, aren't they, Jordan? Yeah, they beat West Ham 4-1. The game marks uh, a year since Emery arrived at Villa Park. They're fifth. They've got Luton, Forest and Fulham next, so that should be nice. Um, In 2023, they earned 62 points from 31 games. Only City have more. Arsenal have the same. Um, since Emery's appointment, they're the fourth best team in the Premier League in terms of points. And what I loved about this game, Jordan, actually, was Villa was so good. And then West Ham scored one, and then it just showed you what momentum can do in a football match. And there was just this sort of 10, 15 minutes where you were like, well, hang on, West Ham have, West Ham have no right at all, but they're going to get something. And then Villa turned it on again. And probably for the good of football, deservedly so. Yeah, I might have to eat some serious humble pie in the sense that a lot of the talk pre-season about Villa doing really well, I thought was a little bit over the top because I, I, the people predicting Villa having a good season this year off the back of last season. But last year, they their form wasn't Champions League form, as you've kind of articulated. It was arguably Premier League winning form. And I just didn't, I didn't think that was sustainable. I didn't think that they could be that good again. So I thought at some point there will be a dip, but they're, they're playing really, really well. If you want to see goals, go to Villa game. They, they, all their games seem to have lots of goals, whether it's for or against them. Um, and, you know, they, they blew West Ham away, who, who were in decent form themselves. Um, a couple of points regarding Villa. Douglas Louise, I've mentioned this pod a couple of times. I, I would really love Arsenal, my club, to go back in and try and get him out of there because I think he's one of the most accomplished midfielders in the Premier League. And I think with Partey maybe coming to the end of his time at Arsenal and his fitness issues, I see him as like an all-action midfielder that would really work well in that kind of eight role, um, but also six as well. Um, and I'm going to go early. I'm going to tip Watkins for player of the year. 
I'm I'm really liking Watkins' is, is rise and he speaks really well about why he's improved. He spoke after the game yesterday about there was a nice interview with um uh form form manager, what's his name? Form manager Smith. Dean Smith. Your friend. My mate, Dean Smith, yeah. And he was they were just had a really nice exchange about, you know, what he'd learned from Dean Smith. Dean Smith spoke about, you know, the work that he one of Watkins has put in to improve. And I just think that he's he's becoming now the the, the number one striker for England after Harry Kane. And I, I can see him playing some role at the Euros next season. Um, but yeah, it pains me to say it, but Villa look like they're going to be a big problem uh, for the rest of the season. It's interesting, John, isn't it? That Eddie Howe gets credit for improving players. And Unai Emery, people are like, look, this is something he does. He improves players. Yeah. Why aren't all managers doing that? Why is that not a given? Like, surely that seems like a really essential part of being a football manager. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually went to this fixture last season, uh, and it, Steve Gerrard was a manager then, and I, and I, I compared the players, and I think there's only two players that started for Villa that aren't involved in the first team that were playing then, and it's completely different. One of uh, Danny Ings and Callum Chambers, who is around and about but st- still at the club, and. Uh, the change is awesome. Now, Ollie Watkins, you don't live too far from this, or when you're in London, um, the, in, in Moorgate on uh, the MS, there is an advert for the England mm-hmm. uh, team and the, you know, the England suits that they've got. And he used, and Ollie Watkins oh, yeah. was one of them, and it's been there for a couple of years. And I always felt that's a bit sad, isn't it? Because he's not really in the England team. And he looks good in the suit. But, I bet, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, he's a good looking guy, isn't he? But it, it was. It was uh, I just thought, mm, imagine that you you make it to the England suit shoot, but you don't make it to the squad. That must be pretty bad for Ollie Watkins. But I do think he's going to get his chance I, now. I I think most people in Moorgate are just getting the meal deal, aren't they? As well, I don't think people. Are... But but I yeah. I just can't. I just always see that and think, oh, poor Ollie Watkins. But now things are going well for him. And producer Joel says there's a great bureau de change at the. Uh, We'll get him in it. So I'm is, trying to run yeah. a high-class Bureau de Change. Shut for an hour. That'll do for part two. <laughs> we'll begin part three at the Etihad. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Manchester City 2, Brighton 1. Paul, do you, do you think City are a bit underwhelming this season? I mean, it's all about your expectation of a side and, and, then, and then what you see because... If most teams were in their position, we wouldn't. That question would be frankly ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is. I do think that's largely been the case, and I think it's something to do with. Uh, well, primarily for me, it's to do with treble hangover. That you know, once you've got to the top of the mountain, it must be very difficult to kind of run back down enthusiastically to start climbing it again. But um, I also think it's something to do with the the seventeen centre backs formation that you get less of the sort of pretty patterns. And even then, the pretty patterns can, you know, is there are some people, myself included, who can have a have a fill of those. But I thought on Saturday, first half, City were fantastic. I thought they were, you know, they really looked at it, high tempo. Everybody was skinning their man. I mean, obviously, Doku just gave, you know, Milner a, a Zimmer frame and an embolism, and you know, it had to go off after sixty minutes or no half time, wasn't it? Um, so Doku had an incredible game, and he's one of the exactly one of those wingers that Jordan's talking about uh but you know Phil Foden as well just slipping sliding through um uh Harlan taking an effort outside of the box and drilling it home that they you know they they looked they look like they've got yeah there's new energy there um players who are willing to kind of assert themselves and then of course in the second half 
disappeared. And clearly Brighton were told that they, you know, they were, they weren't, they weren't doing enough, a good enough job to leave their manager uh, in the place where he can put a calling card down for Guardiola's job. And so they needed to buck up their ideas. And, uh, but also I think it was easy for City in this current mentality where they're not kind of got the bit between their teeth and not sort of howling like mad dogs for a victory, which they never are at this point in the season. They wait and they get better and better and better as the, as the, as the, as the season goes on and the, and the consequences rise. But yeah, Brighton came back in. They showed they've got great individuals. You know, Matoma played well. Ansu Fati made a big difference coming on. And then the game was a lot closer than all that. And it felt like, okay, here are two teams of, uh, who are, may not be of equal stature, but at least competitive between each other. But I thought in the first half, you saw what City could really be about this season. It was pretty frightening. John, I forget who skinned Fernandinho when he had to play right back. And, and it was sort of... Vinicius. Who, who, it was Vinicius, that's right. Um, yeah. And, you know, before that game, you were like, oh, I'm not sure about this. But obviously, you know, Pep had injury issues and he knows his stuff. It's a bit like Doku versus Milner, wasn't it? Where you're like, well, Deserby knows more than I do. So, like, clearly this isn't, this isn't <laughs> yeah. as ridiculous an idea as it looks when the lineups are there yeah. and you're going, that is a mismatch. But it turned out, and even though afterwards Deserby said, no, well, that wasn't the issue. You were like, I really think that was the issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, he, if he'd have had a Dingra sitting right on top of him for the whole game doubling up, then that would have made a difference, I imagine. But, you know, they were playing it, they were playing it quickly, that as, as City can do in this model. You know, they released the ball quickly up the field and, and they found him one-on-one and then it was over. Those games where you, it was almost like, a you know, the, the famous Taxi for Mycon game where Bale is... And in, in that game... I remember uh, Javier Zanetti was in the inter team, and I just thought, I don't know much about football, but I do think if you put Zanetti next to him, Bale might not have it so easy. And maybe sometimes this, you know, because of course, let us recall, this game was hyped up as the tactical tight trouser off between Pep and and Deserby. I mean, Arteta is disappointed not to make it into that. He is, yeah, yeah. But but there is, you know, and. You know, wow, guys, look at what he's doing this type of thing. But it, it ultimately, for all the tactical nuances, Brighton cannot live with the quality of player that Manchester City has, as Paul said, really, in the first half, and that's what won the game. Uh, but, you know, being able to bring on Ansu Fati uh, shows that Brighton is a destination for players now. So uh, maybe one day they'll be... They're never going to be Manchester City, but... Players want to go there, and that's a good sign for them. To, and to play for Deserby, this great prophet who thinks James Milner can defend against Jeremy Doku. I noticed that um, Edison didn't start this game, and I just wonder if <laughs> we're going to see another club now rotating goalkeeper. I don't know if that was he injured. I think it was the he, no, he 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 just only got back from South America, having played twice. And Pep uh uh Willerman wrote about this today, which was that Ortega can't play in the Carling Cup or Carrell Cup because they're not in it. So we wanted him to get in case something befalls Edison. There were some anti-Bobby Charlton chants at City. Um, City released a statement saying uh, we're extremely disappointed to have learned of reports of offensive chanting from a small number of individuals about Sir Bobby Charlton in some of the concourses at the Etihad Stadium during half-time of yesterday's fixture against Brighton and Hove Albion. Every club has... Idiots, that is the inalienable truth of all of this. Especially as that game was designated as a tribute to Francis Lee. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, 
Ridiculous. Um, Mark says, how convincing was Gary O'Neill and his post-match on Match of the Day? This was nothing to do with me returning here. It was just a game. Stares right down camera lens. <laughs> it breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> Gary O'Neill has been brilliant in the build-up to that game in the most, the least convincing. This isn't about me. It's just another game, uh, which he said before, and then a bit after. I mean, come on. I, mean... I suppose he can't say it is about me. Yeah. The thing I really liked was at full time, Sean Derry, who's on his coaching staff, started to go absolutely and like really was like, I'm going to give it now. And Gary O'Neill had to do the sort of football version of, it's not worth it, Dave. Just leave it. You know, it like in that moment, at least he had something to do, didn't he? Um, good good bottle cuts. smash by, yes. I was going to say, good bottle smash by Iriola as well when the second yeah, goal goes in really brilliant good. brilliant I mean some more playing out from the back I mean Neto I don't know what Neto's doing but Phil Billing there was a time when Phil Billing had blonde streaks and he did look quite like a llama and he tweeted like a picture of him he he tweeted himself a picture of him and a llama and it was sort of quite uncanny and he did run a bit like a newborn baby llama at that moment which was not the right thing to do and that I mean Paul the red card for Lewis Cook it's not so much it's stupid to headbutt someone but like you're the guy that's kicked him over as well that's the thing I really liked about that bit yeah I just got rattled I, I don't I think I think everyone is having to learn quite a lot about the Premier League quite quickly and I don't think a starting midfield pair of pivot of uh, Scott who hadn't barely started a game in the Premier League and Cook was the right move um, didn't really often I think Lerma was on the bench didn't really have an awful lot of security there but yeah, the kind of he was goaded into it, wasn't it? And it was stupid. I mean, he barely touched him either, and it was just ridiculous, kind of sort of instinctive, kind of like I'll flip my head at you now, when that's the one thing you should instinctively try not to do. But anyway, yeah, it was deserved and stupid. Oh, we should mention that Cunha goal was absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah, beauty, uh, and nice assist, nice assist for the second as well. Yeah, really good. I mean, uh, Brentford three, Burnley nil. Grog says, does Mopai's Brilliant performance mean the pod must all quit the pod now? It's <laughs> a good question, John. You were there. I was there to see it, and he, he he did play really, really well. But in the very first seconds, he's passed the ball straight through. Uh, Burnley were doing what Burnley did for quite a lot of the game, has just left him. He missed. And then there's another chance, uh, by which point I think uh, Brentford were already ahead, um, and a goal in which he played a full part, and the ball comes to him, and... It's almost like he can't believe he's going to do it and the ball only just reaches James Trafford who actually made a bit of a mess of it himself. But after that, he, he played really, really well. Thomas Frank gave him an 8 or 9 rating saying if he'd have got a goal, he'd have got a 10. Uh, which, you know, classic Thomas Frank. Um, Burnley, ah, oh dear. Uh, I, I, actually, full credit to Vincent Company coming out just saying... This wasn't good enough. We've got a lot to learn. Very, very honest. But I don't know how long you can go through the season saying this wasn't good enough. I've got to be very, very honest because th- they were poor, really, really poor. Uh, offered their fans very little. And uh, who was the guy that missed that chance? Luca Cogliasso. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Oh dear. And that just summed it all up. I'm really keen to see how Vincent Company plays this now because I don't know the man, but I get the impression that he's very principled and believes in how he wants to play and he'll stick with how he's going to play. 
versus I think what Ten Hag did last season, which was you got to park your style of play to get points in in the bag. Well, no, I didn't see much evidence of you know this this flowing style of football. You know, like is the new Bielsa or anything there? It was like there's the out ball, get it launched out of there. Oh God, let's panic! It, it was it was shapeless. It really was. Um, am I am I right in saying that Burnley play Bournemouth? Next. Mm. Yes, next oh, week. Yes, yes. Enormous, isn't it? Look, uh, you may not know Vincent Company, but any friend of Nadam's is a friend of all of ours. <laughs> um, wonderful goals. And Buemo's goal was great. And the third, I've been hoping for something like that for ages. I've been waiting for Godos. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh. Um, uh, who said the puns God. have gone on this part? Everyone. Eh? <laughs> eh? Um, no back, baby. Yeah, for it, <laughs> Forest 2, Luton 2. Another point for Luton Town as they edge further away from the hilarious zero-point total. They're 17th. They're out of the bottom three. They've got something, haven't they, Paul? Yeah, they do. I, I, I thought this watching them in the in the playoff final, I'm lucky enough to have gone to a press conference, listen to listen to the coach talk. He he, he, he talks a good game. He's, he's, he's smart. He's got this sort of, you know, he's, he's restrained, but you can tell that, the, you know, he... he, he he uh, he's a passionate guy, and and I think he's worked out what is. Uh, I don't think this is his natural. Rob Edwards his natural style of play, but I think he's worked out what suits the players, and also what's going to give a team like Luton Town the best chance of staying in the Premier League, and that is being a bunch of highly athletic, intense, uh, an intense group that doesn't relent and plays direct, and you know works on the things that he can work on, controls the things that he can control mainly set pieces. Um, but, you know, Adebayo's goal, you look, you know, that not entirely dissimilar from an Ollie Watkins little, little take and finish, you know, that's impressive centre-forward play. Uh, I, I think Forrest will be disappointed. And again, I think he's going back, you can draw parallels with the Chelsea game there because I think they thought they had that game done. And then when you start to kind of change your approach to the game or ease off the pedal and you let particularly a scrappy, combative team back in. So I think there's 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 learnings there for 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 Forrest and their, and their lost squad. I just want to mention the match of the day commentator and his obsession with calling Chris Wood, Chris Woods, mm. um, who was really an, good. an English yes. goalkeeper of the 1980s and clearly a, a very different name. And he named, he just said it again and again and again. I think there was a point where somebody kind of must've got on his earpiece to say, you've got the wrong name. He still persisted with it. And then uh, Wood scores his second goal and he calls it trademark Chris Woods. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like, I just imagine this parallel universe where he's been watching this Chris Woods player, Norwich goalie of yeah. the eight season. It does, um, it does put pay to that those theories that they do all the commentary in post, doesn't it? Unless yeah. that was that was done, that was a to end the conspiracy. Actually, uh, MFPL Doom said after the match that they commentator kept calling Nottingham Forest goal scorer Chris Woods, which eighties nineties goalkeeper to the panel think could still do a job up front. In the Premier League, I mean, you need a classic big man, little man, don't you? Peter Hooker, yeah. <laughs> Grizovich and John Burridge <laughs> next to each other. What else? Chris, you could have Chris Turner for a small man, oh, yeah. little man goal. Get, get, get. Oh, Bounce it. it off Neville Southall. <laughs> yeah, big Nev. Yeah, big Nev. The greatest, come on, come the on. greatest of all time. The best, the best of all, yeah. the best and the best of all of us still. Like you know, wonderful yes, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's worth saying that once Luton got a point. The thing we were searching for was Cheltenham not scoring a goal all season because I think they went eight games without scoring. Then they scored in a draw against Derby and of course they won at the weekend at home to Cambridge. Uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And oh, For God's sake. Anyway, we're on a pretty bad run. And actually last season we started really well and then we didn't. And we got like one win between October and March. So, 
you know, I've bedded down for the winter, you know, <laughs> locked the door, battened down the hatches. Um, on to Skelmersdale United, Pascal Chimbonda's club. Uh, Matt says, hi, Max and everyone. I was 35 minutes into a spin class. I almost fell off my bike when Will Unwin started talking about his imminent visit to see Bursko versus Skem. My first job as a journalist was on the Ormskirk Advertiser. As well as reporting on wheelie bin discussions at parish council meetings, I covered the two teams in partnership with sports editor Jeff Howard. It was a fantastic four years covering the Northwest Counties League. One of my biggest regrets was living and working in China when Bursko won the FA Trophy in 03. Football Weekly has been part of my life for many years. Blew my mind to hear the two teams I covered at the start of my career. Given such coverage, I'm booked for the Manchester show next month. As in on the panel, this is exciting. We'll do we'll do an extra uh, half hour on that. Will's anecdote will have to go some to beat this for me. That's Matt in Preston. Uh, they won at the weekend. Pascal Chimbonda's first win, a 4-1 win against Barnold's Wick Town. Chimbonda was sent off after 68 minutes. The Twitter page says 68 minutes. Penalty for Barlick. Absolute carnage has happened here at the community stadium, ending up in Pascal being handed a red card. Ben Lightfoot handed a second yellow being sent off. Barlick manager getting a red card. There's a great photo of... Uh, Pascal Chimbonda watching from a roof with uh, sort of, you know, orange. Uh, it's like an orange, one of those temporary fences and sort of a porter cabin behind you. But look, as we said, uh, good on him uh, for uh, taking the job and getting that victory. Um, Jordan, you wanted to contribute after the excellent balance we had with Lars and Nikki about how much dogs are wonderful things. You want to, of course you do want to, join the other team of course of course yeah i mean i love lars and nikki um dearly but um I, i'm i'm joining the anti-dog uh massive um you know just i just the, the one thing worse than dogs for me are really bad dog owners and the the number of bad dog owners is really really high i was on the piccadilly line the other day and this guy got on with his dog and I couldn't see, I couldn't see when they got on, but I just felt this thing licking my, my, my um, very expensive trainers without me realising it. And then the dog got a bit closer. And I just, and the, the dog owner didn't try to pull his dog away from me, assuming that I might not like that. And that for me is the worst thing about bad dog owners. They seem to assume that everybody else loves dogs and everybody else no matter how big or small the dog is is comfortable being around their dog so for me i'm fully i'm fully signing up to the the anti-dog massive on the guardian football weekly producer joel asks did the uh did the dog get on at finsbury bark or wolf green or <laughs> oh, very yeah, good, very good. Jack, jack russell square <laughs> Um, you don't have to read any of these, he said. Oh, no, really good. Come on, then. 81089, give us your dog tube stations. Um, I've definitely done worse. Uh, Charlie says, have any of the panel been so hard up they've had to consider selling one of their Porsches? James says, did Barry sell his Porsche to afford his recent midlife crisis sabbatical? Dwayne says, any inspirational stories about you put a deposit down on your first home? Um, just go searching Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. Yes, John? Jake Humphrey must be in on the joke at this point. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, that... I think so. I that, think so. <laughs> just astounding stuff. And, but the really, do you know what the really stupid thing for me was? When I put down my deposit on my flat, I totally forgot to sell my Porsche. And I could have got yeah. a better... I just left it there gathering <laughs> dust because I was driving JK's Clio and I just totally forgot. And what, and what was I? What was I doing? I, I, I actually like. I actually like the coder. It's like, did you buy about the same Porsche case? The very same <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The happy ending. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't. Listen, each to their own. Um, good luck if you have a Porsche to sell. For the, <laughs> the deposit on your flat. 
Um, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Jordan. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Max. Thank you, John. Cheers, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. That will be back on Wednesday. This is The Guardian. 